I'm Claire Edwards and you're listening to Authentic Leadership, a series of conversations, insights and inspirations with leaders who are real, raw and authentic. Today I bring you a thought-provoking conversation with Dr. John Martini, an incredible man who has inspired and challenged thousands of people to recognise their full potential. Our chosen topic is leading with values, and we cover it from multiple perspectives, including how to shift values up in your hierarchy and dealing with conflicting values in relationships. Our conversation starts with the story of how Dr. John came to discover the significance of values. Enjoy. I became a student of Dr. John D. Martini about 15 years ago, not long after I moved to Australia. And little did I know the impact his work would have on my life. Through working with his unique methodology, the D. Martini method, I was able to not only let go of a traumatic past experience, but actually embrace it and, and use it to fulfill my purpose. But today isn't about me. It's about a man who is a world-leading human behavior specialist, a researcher, a prolific best-selling author, and a polymath. And in plain English, that means that he has studied over 299 academic disciplines. And of the myriad leadership topics we could have chosen to cover, we landed on one that I know Dr. Martini was genuinely passionate about. Well, he's passionate about all of them, but exceptionally passionate about this one. And that's leading with values. And the context of our conversation today will be self-leadership. Although having said that, I've no idea where it's going to go. Dr. John, a very warm welcome to Authentic Leadership. Well, thank you for having me. I was looking forward to this. Same here, same here. So, uh, yeah, I've heard you speak on many, many occasions and never, ever without talking about values, regardless of the topic of your presentation. Can you share with us a little about how you came to discover the significance of values and and how this has shaped your life? That's a great question. I was 23 years old. I was just starting professional school. And I had been already since 18 teaching. That's how I made it way through school. And I was interested in why some people would say they would do something and do it, and why other people would say they want to do something, and then not. And I was interested in what is the distinction. And I found out that each individual has a set of priorities, a set of values, mm-hmm. things that are most important important in their life. And whenever they set goals or objectives that are aligned and congruent with what they value most, they increase the probability of actually walking their talk, not limping their life. And so that was when I first became aware of how important it is to know what really is important to you, not what you think it is. Many people, if I ask people, how many of you would love to be financially independent? Everybody puts their hands, both hands or the legs in the air because they go, oh, (laughs) yes, yes, yes. And then I ask them, how many of you are? And all the hands and legs go down just about. Yeah. And then I haven't realized what they say they want and what they're actually creating in their life are not the same. And many people have confused financial independence with spending money on consumables that depreciate and actually not buying assets that accumulate. Mm. And so as a result, they've, they've got a confusion about what they want, and then they set goals that aren't congruent with what's really, truly important to them. And then they procrastinate, hesitate, frustrate, and don't get around to doing it. They need external motivation to get them to do things. So it started at 23. And I started to devour every piece of literature, every book on that topic, axiology, that I was able to get my hands on. And I was amazed that there was, it wasn't as prolific as I thought. Mm-hmm. I was able to devour everything that I could find in English. And um, then I realized it's time for me to take it to the next level. So that's why I put focus on that and have spoken so much about that all these years. And, and so why, in your opinion, wasn't it so prolific? If it's so significant, if, as you say, what's highest in our priorities, our values are driving our behaviors, then 
why why isn't this sort of you know being shouted from the rooftops for everybody to understand i'd be curious about how many people listening really know what the hierarchy of values is well i mean i can make assumptions i think i have an uh, an assessment that's solid and that is that many people uh have confused values with morality and what they've done without even realizing it, if they've subordinated to mothers, fathers, preachers, teachers, conventions, traditions, and mores of a society about how they should be, ought to be, supposed to be, got to be, must mm. be, need to be. And they're trying to live by the imperative injunctions of outside authorities, which creates an internal conflict on their own intrinsic values. And so people are really kind of like caught between trying to fit into society instead of stand out. And yet, if you ask any human being, how many of you want to make a difference? They all put their hands up. Yeah. But you're not going to make a difference fitting in. You're going to make a difference standing out. And the fear of standing out is massive because in, in very th thousands of years ago, in very early times of the human being, if we were living by ourselves, we didn't do as well as if we were living with a group. Mm -hmm. And the bigger the group, the more safety. And so to stand out is like being rejected and banished and, and exiled from the group. And that creates an anxiety and instinct to avoid that. And so people, uh, as a result of it, have confused individual morals and values with the collective values of whoever the authority of society is. And that's created confusion. And, and I, I went to Rice University to talk to the philosophy department there about, um, about values. And the only thing they had on their entire value study was what's the right values for a society and this is delusional this is not something that's ever going to be found there is no one right thing because every human being has a fingerprint specific set of values but this is the this is the reason why it, it didn't become popular it wasn't a commercial thing even though it underlies economics it underlies morality it underlies many things in fact productivity and fulfillment in life but it's just not been as big a market I think as technology and and other fields, but it it is it's a very important topic. Everything that we do, engagement at work, learning in school, communication and relationships, um, leadership skills, wealth building, all the areas of our life depend on values. Absolutely, and so going to that sort of thinking about you know when you're growing up, you sort of I suppose for want of a better word, a, a downloading the values of of your caregivers or the people who are most influencing you in life. And so is there that, that sort of lack of conscious awareness to challenge our own values, to say, hang on a minute, is this, is this really what's important to me? Is this really what I believe? Or whose values am I living by? <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's called the midlife crisis. <laughs> <laughs> what, I, what I found out, what I found out is that, uh, and this goes back to even Freud, you know, when you're a child and you're totally dependent on your mommy, then your mommy becomes your first value giver. Yeah. You know, when you're from zero to one, you can get away with anything. You can pee, you can poo, you can jump, scratch, bite, you can do anything. And they just, she just unconditionally loves you. You got it till one. The second you stand up, in come the, the values, right, wrong, don't, yes, no. Hmm. And so the values, the fear of being rejected, the fear of not having a caregiver at one years old starts. That's yeah. when we start to inculcate the mommy's value system as the first superego. Freud called it the superego, the injected value of an outer authority that we depend on. Then comes father, then comes preacher, then comes teacher, then comes school kids hmm. and social circles. And then we go up to our boss and then we go into our industry and then we go up the scale until eventually we reach about the age 40 and about age 30 to 40 is when our, our parents, who were the first authorities, we finally reached that stage. And now we start letting go of their authority because we don't, don't depend on them. The second we're not dependent on people, we can transcend their value influence. But as long as we depend on people, we, we in, inject it. <clears throat> and if you stop and think about it, if you've ever been really infatuated with a new relationship, you will sacrifice what's important to you to be with them for fear of loss of them. Yes. And this is how we inculcate those values. And we basically then we resent that because we want our own life back. So we're in conflict at first because we don't want to lose them. But at the same time, we don't want to lose ourselves. 
So eventually trying to find an equilibrium and find a real match in a relationship where you can be ourselves at the same time to be with somebody else and not fear rejection. So this is a very strong stage, but most people are around 36 to 40 about, about that age, about the Mm -hmm. age that our parents were when we were young. uh, That's when we, we finally break free and start to say, is this my life? What's true for me? And I've been subordinating it. And I, and now the Bonnie rare regrets start coming in. We start yeah. to think about what is really important yeah. to us. And is, is that often when you see people also changing careers? Cause it's like they've woken up and it's like, you know, I don't know. I don't want to be an accountant anymore. I want to be a healer or something like that. When there's massive change. Can I share a story a really interesting story? Mm. <clears throat> so I have this guy who comes to, I, you know, I, I teach the break to experience. I've done mm-hmm. it like 1,150 times. And uh, this guy comes the break to experience and he's at that age, you know, he's 40 something years old and um, he comes to the break to, and he's kind of down and kind of depressed. And I, and I said, so what's, what's going down? He says, well, I just went bankrupt. I said, okay. And my wife left me because of it. I took the kids. Okay. And, um, and I, I, I've got a heart palpitations and I nearly had a heart attack. Okay. And I'm, I'm severely depressed. I'm taking meds. Okay. And it says, and my mom and dad, my, my mom is not doing well. My dad just died. Okay. And he just went on and on. And it just, a story just kept going and going. He wanted to rant about his, you know, victim of his history kind of thing. And I said, great. And I said, okay. So the question is, is what's the upsides? You told me all the downsides. What's the upsides? And after probing a bit, I, we found out that he was in a job that he didn't want to do. The, most of his life, he'd spent time trying to please his father and his mother. And so when his father died and his mother was no longer kind of stable and kind of getting senile, he started thinking, I don't need to please them anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. worked my whole life to please my dad. He's gone. And he married the woman he didn't want to be with. He took on the career he didn't want to take on. And a whole bunch of things were going down that he was trying to please people. And I said, I said, what do you really want to do? He says, well, all my life, I've always wanted to have a, a, a repairing of fancy cars and sell, resell cars. And I said, well, so right now, it sounds like the greatest day of your life. He goes, what? He said, well, you're now free. You don't have a wife that you're mm-hmm. having to take care of. You don't have the kids around you all the time. You can start your career things. You, you've got your, your business down, which is you would never leave your business if it was up. You, why not just go out and do what you really love? And he's taught me, he goes, this is one of the greatest days of your life. All these things are happening to help you become authentic. <laughs> and he looked at me and he goes, I can't believe you just said all that, but that's a, that's a new way of looking at it. I said, listen, everything that happens in your life, in your physiology your psychology your sociology or business, even your theological feedback is trying to get you authentic. Your yes. brain is a homeostatic mechanism guiding you to authenticity and in true integrity. And so he, he stopped looking at him and you know what? He did it. He opened up mm-hmm. the, the car dealership he wanted to do. He repaired the cars. He went out and did it. He stopped wearing his suit, started wearing flowered shirts, moved to Florida, <laughs> got him a younger girl, started his life, looked younger, lost weight, got his heart back in shape. I mean, the guy just took off after that. And, I, and I'm a firm believer that if you're not integral and, and living congruently, according to your values, your body's going to let you know it. Your psychology's going to yes. let you know it. Everything around you is going to let you know you're not being you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my goodness, if there ever there was a, a reframe of a challenge into an opportunity, that was certainly it. Yeah. He was laughing at the end. He says, I says, I never would have imagined I'd come to this program and then walk out giving myself permission to be me. Absolutely. And, and you know, and, and that's yeah. well, I was his father's. I was his father's age. So he needed another father figure to tell him, go for it, son. <laughs> and thank you for sharing that, because I'm sure there'll be people listening who are in a similar at a similar crossroads. Now, there's lots of different ways I want to go. But but one of one of the things I wanted to talk about in, in a way about going back to morality, because. I think people often have a perception of values as 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 only virtues. Um, but I know as someone who has taught me about that everything has a balance. Can you speak to that a little bit more, please? That it's not it's it's not just about trying to be perfect and virtuous all the time and you know and and and, and 
a lot of people's ideas of what integrity means. Yes, I'm glad you asked that. That's a great question. I've been wanting to talk that, about that one. All right. We have two types of thinking process in our brain. We have systems one thinking, mm-hmm. which is primarily an amygdala limbic brain function where you emotionally react before you think. And it's hindsight. And then we've got systems two thinking, which is thinking before you react, which is foresight. One was called Epimetheus. The other one is called Prometheus in the great mythologies. And what's interesting is uh, this amygdala wants to avoid predator and seek prey, wants to avoid pain, seek pleasure. It was the pleasure principle or the hedonistic principle by Freud. And because of it, morality, when filtered through the amygdala, is the search for one-sidedness. The search for nice, never mean, kind, never cruel, positive, never negative, peace, never war, you know, give, never take. And and we're looking for one side. So we think that perfection is one-sidedness. Mm. Of course, we go around, we go, well, I'm not perfect. perfect. You know, we're not perfect yet. And then the systems two is more objective. It's less subjective. It's less biased. It's less in-group, out-group thinking. And it's more objective. It's more more loving. It's more neutral. And it sees and embraces the both sides of life. You remember the Buddha says the desire for that which is unobtainable and the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable is a source of human suffering. Hmm. So as long as we're in the amygdala, we're going to be trying to avoid everything that we can't avoid and seek everything we can't obtain. But because we think that, you know, if we think if we're in a relationship, we think we're going to get all positive, not negative, but the relationship's going to give you things you like and dislike. That's how life is. All goals will have things you like and dislike. So until you can embrace in systems two a more neutral objective and understand that true virtue, as Aristotle said in his times, was the balance between the excesses and deficiencies of perception, which were the vices. So he understood a broader eudaimonic pursuit instead of a hedonistic pursuit. Hmm. And he understood that true virtue was the embracing of both sides. And believe it or not, we all have that. So we already have our perfection but we're searching for a one-sided perfection, which is unobtainable, and we're trying to avoid the other, which is unavoidable. And so this moral hypocrisy that the amygdala puts us in is unobtainable. But the moral understanding of a true virtuous thing, as Aristotle would say, is something that is inescapable. And so I try to teach people how to be an inescapable virtue instead of an un- unavailable virtue. And that was what I found so liberating. It was like, you know, um, it was so permission giving and and not sort of spending my time and my days trying to live up to that which was unattainable. Yeah. Well, I would say that, you know, if you're trying to get rid of half of your life, you'll never love your life. Hmm. And the magnificence of who you are is far greater than any fantasies you'll impose on yourself. And, and I'm going to say this, it's going to shock some people, but But one of the fastest ways to disempower society, to make it controllable by religion and politics, is to promote a religious or political idealism, a moral hypocrisy that's unobtainable. And that was always used to disempower people. It was a guilt-producing control business. Mm -hmm. There's a great scholar uh, who's a Catholic priest and scholar that talks about this, of how they use those mechanisms for the literate individuals to make it easy for them to control, to keep them children instead of respectful grown-ups that take on responsibility. So what happens is they put out, promote something that, you know, it's like grandma saying, now be nice, don't be mean, and then five seconds later beating hell out of grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. these are moral hypocrisies. So I, don't, I don't find those a way to live your life. I, I'm, I found out when I went through the Oxford Dictionary many years ago, I literally was a neurotic guy that went through page by page and isolated every possible human behavioral trait. I found I had every one of them. I was nice and mean and kind mm. and cruel and honest and dishonest yeah. and playful and war, warful. And I mean, you know, considered and inconsidered. I did every single thing. And when I found out I had every trait and nothing was missing in me, that liberated me from trying to get rid of half of me and try to find only one side. Oh, and how I fought against that. When I did the breakthrough experience with you, I was de- I was angry at you. I was denying it. I'm like, no, it, it, all these dreadful traits are in this other person and none of them are in me. And how dare you? Well, that's <laughs> was, the funny part really of it. Is, you. 
I, I, uh, I, uh, I found people over the years doing the breakthrough experience. I've done that thousands, thousands of people and, uh, and people fight things, but what it's been shown, even in biblical times in Romans two, one, I believe it was, it basically said that, uh, whatever you judge in others, it's you. But I didn't <laughs> Point your want finger to, out. I didn't want to acknowledge out. that. Yeah. But the thing is, is whatever we resent in others is something we're ashamed of in ourselves, but we're too mm. proud to admit it. And we don't want to be around them because they're reminding us of what we don't like about ourselves. And whatever we admire about others is something we're, we have within ourselves, but we're too humble to admit it. And we want to be around them because yeah. we want to be able to admit it. But the reality is we have all the traits. Nothing's missing in us. I always say at the level of our soul, this, the, the true authentic self, the executive centered centered part of us, uh, nothing's missing in us. Yeah. And, and every time we're too proud or too humble to admit what we see in others inside us, we disempower our life because we basically give up ownership of who we are. So it's, it's wiser not to judge because we feel empty when we judge. We have a void and emptiness when we judge, but we have a tremendous fulfillment when we love people and realize that it's just a reflection of ourselves. Actually, you've just I'm just picked up on something that you said then, and and I don't know if you can if you've already covered it or you can extrapolate on it. But you said a lot of I've heard you say a lot of times that you know our values are driven by our voids. Um, what do, what do you mean by that? Well, anytime we're too proud to admit what we see in others inside us, mm. and we would go, I would never do that. I I, I swear I would never do that. Uh, we have a disowned part. And that mm. disowned part is that is leaves us empty because it's not all honoring all of us. We're trying to pretend we don't have it. And that's that moral hypocrisy. So we yes. go around pretending like we don't have it. And we live it behind the scenes and we can't see it because we have a subjective bias interpretation of ourselves, and we block seeing it within ourselves. We have a kind of a, an addiction to pride. Our amygdala is addicted to pride and addicted to fantasies about ourselves. But then we do sometimes we're too humble to admit we, we put people in pedestals. We're too humble to admit what we see in them is inside us. And again, we have a disowned part. And mm. all of our disowned parts leave us empty, leave us unfulfilled. And so our values are trying to refill those. And so they lead us along a path, a most efficient, effective path, where we're facing all the people that we're denying within ourselves to teach us how to love that part of ourselves. And that's our journey. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Oof. <laughs> um, that now I don't I, I don't want to spoil it because you've got some amazing gifts that I'm, I'm gonna um, put up, put on the show notes. But one of the one of the gifts that you've got is 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 a values determination process. Um, and I, I, I I'm putting something slightly hypothetical here, but it's just something that I've got I've got in my head. So that say somebody determines what the hierarchy of values is and say, I don't know, uh, love of learning is at the top and, and, and um, financial independence is further down. Is there a way that you can shift something higher up your hierarchy of values? Absolutely. And I, I've been blessed to do that in the breakthrough experience for years because people sometimes realize they're 45, 50 years old or whatever, 55 and they go, ooh, I've never had a value on wealth building. And now I realize I might only have 10 to 20 years of working I, and I haven't saved and invested. Mm. And now it becomes more valuable. Well, what we do is anytime you want to raise a value on your hierarchy of values is you stack up general benefits of the action steps that are proven to help fulfill what, you're, what you want to be, you know, fulfill in your life. Mm-hmm. So you would write down that you're going to take a portion of whatever income you have and set it aside and buy assets with it. You're going to have a, a maybe a high value on maybe reading about investments. You may have a value on getting mentorship. Whatever the action steps that are that have proven to work to help build fortunes, if you stack up the benefits on that, general benefits, you will automatically increase the probability of taking action on it because right. every action you, ba- you make – is based on what you believe will give you the greatest advantage over disadvantage over anything else. Hmm. So if you can stack up enough reasons for doing it, when the why is big enough, the house will take care of themselves. You'll do it. Yeah. And you can also link it to what you currently have as a value. How specifically is doing these actions going to help me fulfill what I love most, which is my children or my learning. Yes. And in the process of doing that, the more links you do, the higher the probability of you'll act and you can shift values. I've had many, many people who could not get ahead financially, no matter what, they kept ending up having something, you know, 
happen and it would they'd have to bail somebody out, a family member, or they end up all of a sudden having a slow period in their business and having to wipe out their savings. They kept running into that until they really valued wealth building. Mm. And the moment they did, they started to take off. And so I've helped people restack it and help build wealth or have relationships. You know how many people say they want a relationship, but their values aren't proving it. Their life's yes. not demonstrating it. And they go around and they what they really are wounded in the past by past relationships. And they're protecting themselves from that. And they go around, so I want to have a whole soulmate. I want to have a man or a woman in my life. And really what they're doing is I'm scared to do that because I've been wounded in the past. And so my values are to avoid something that's been painful. And even though they say something, I don't go by what people say. I go by what they live. Your actions speak louder than your words. And on my website, the value determination process helps get you get past the BS and find out what's really your values are being demonstrated. That helps you set real goals in real time with real strategies to help you achieve. Yeah, gosh, I remember, it's like the what do they call that? The therapeutic paradox, where it's fear of intimacy but fear of rejection at the same time, or something, and it's it puts you in a bit of a headspin. Well, we we have the, we have two fears that drive our lives: the fear of loss of that which we seek, and the fear of gain of that which we want to avoid. And most yes. people, as long as they're highly polarized in their perception, with infatuations, resentments, and moral paradoxes, they live vacillating between those two fears. I want to have a relationship, but I don't want to be rejected. I don't want yeah. to lose them. And so you catch that. But that's why living by your highest value, where you're more objective and more neutral and more adaptable and more resilient, liberates you from those phobias and fantasies that drive most people's lives. Yeah. Uh, okay. So that then brings me on to a question around... Um, <clears throat> I don't know, you, you've got either, a, it could be a, a professional couple or a, a couple in a relationship. Um, for each person, their highest value is is quite contrasting and potentially potentially conflicting. So from all, from all your experience, how, how, how do we help people whose conflicting values is impacting the quality of their relationship? Oh, it's, it's, I'm glad you asked that. First of all, you know, people have this fantasy that the purpose of marriage is happiness. I always say the purpose of marriage is to find some you can delegate low priority stuff to and, <laughs> and have cheap labor, cheap labor value and to find somebody that when they talk about what's important to them, it helps you go to sleep at night. That's a bad joke. Don't... No, the purpose, the purpose of marriage is to help each individual learn how to be authentic. So if you get cocky and you get proud and you puff yourself up, they'll bring you down. If you get humble, they'll lift you up. They're trying to get you back into authenticity. Yeah. But the wisest thing to do is to find out what their top three values are, the things that they're committed to, dedicated to, reliable to focus on, and, and find out how those serve your top three. If you ask how specifically is what my spouse's highest value, how is this individual fulfilling that, helping me fulfill mine? Once you see that, you don't need to fix them or change them. They want to be loved for who they are, which is, and their identity revolves around what they value most. Yes. So if you're trying to project your values onto them and trying to get them to live in your values, you're going to have futility. It'll never work. And if you try to sacrifice and live in their values, you'll end up presenting them and that'll never work. But if you learn how to communicate what you value in terms of what they value and respect what they value and how it helps you fulfill yours, that's one of the greatest exercises you can do. Sit down while you order some food at a restaurant and sit down on a piece of paper and take the top three values of both of you and ask how specifically is their top value helping me fulfill mine? How's it helped me fulfill my second one, my third one? How's mine top ones helping them fulfill theirs? And sit down and keep doing that and keep asking that question and answering that because then you'll start to see that, my God, we're helping each other fulfill our dreams. And all relationships are utilitarian. They're both, everybody's using each other to help them fulfill what their dreams are. That's how it works. Ouch, that, ow, ouch. That was a bit of a, <laughs> that was a bit of a, a, a wake up reminder for me. <laughs> oh, yeah, but, you know, there's another thing that's interesting. And, you know, I ask people when you're looking for a mate, I usually start with the women. You're looking for a mate, you're looking for somebody that's fit, that's nice looking, right? That, that matches your search image that looks like they're vital and healthy and might have some testosterone or whatever. And then you're looking for somebody that's intelligent. And then you're looking for somebody who's got some ambition. Then you're looking for somebody that's got a little resource, more resources than you. So you don't have to depend on them in case you get pregnant. 
Then you want somebody that wants some love and intimacy and has a nice, uh, you know, sexual vitality to them. Then you're looking for somebody that's socially connected and savvy, can interact with your friends and loved ones. Then you're looking for somebody that's, you know, inspired by something that's inspired by some spiritual pursuit in their life. You're wanting the best package you can to give you the most advantage in the seven areas of your life. Yeah. And so are they. They're looking for the same thing. The, the irony of the idea that, you know, men are only looking for pretty girls is not true. Yeah. I've, I've done thousands of, of questions and they're looking for a package, too, with all of them. Otherwise, you got a rental program, not a purchase plan. <laughs> and so I'm a, a firm believer that, you know, you're, you're looking for a relationship that can give you advantages in all areas of your life. And so are they. And so if you're not delivering, <laughs> you don't think that they're committed to you. Most people think that, well, now that you've got the ring on the finger that they're now committed. But the truth is people are committed to the fulfillment of their values. Yeah. And if all of a sudden you you go out, get out of shape, you start losing your mind, you start not working, you start losing ambition, you have you wipe out all your resources, you start getting belligerent, you're not, you're not performing in, in bed, you're, you're socially isolated. They start thinking, I don't know how, how long I can endure this. Yeah. This is not working for me. So the reality is that you you want to make sure that you offer something of value. You always want to ask yourself, what's in it for them <laughs> to oh. be with me? And we've done this. I was thinking about, about me and my hubby, and 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 he he's studied with you as well. Um, but it, yeah, it was just a wake up call of my behavior over the past few weeks in in projecting my values onto him. So um, thank you for that reminder. It's very timely. Well. If any two people are exactly the same, one's not necessary. That's the twilight zone. Yeah, yeah. That. That's why you get these complementary opposites, like the DNA. The male and female DNA are completely complementary opposite, mm. going in two different directions. And that's why you wouldn't want to be married to you. Imagine if you woke up and you were married to you. <laughs> I was married to myself. Him. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay, I want to I want to change tack slightly, and it's not um, it's it's not necessarily questions that I was thinking about before, but I'm curious as to your um, your opinion, your perception. So, when you look at sort of organisations and and organisational values, um, I mean, we're going through such an interesting time and we've got nothing to benchmark against from the past. But but so much of what's happening today is that I think individuals, people who are employed by organizations are waking up to the to the importance and significance of their own values, which is potentially conflicting with the organization's values. And some organizations are doing that brilliantly and adapting, and some are really struggling and still dictating. What are you seeing, Dr. John? Well, most people, and I'm amazed, I, I, I've been speaking and training consultants and companies for a long time. And and I'm still amazed at how they're still vulnerable to the fantasy that a company has values. <laughs> mm. I, I, and that, that amazes me. There's no such thing as a company that has values. The people have values. Mm. And that's something that they have to think. I, I've seen, I, I went in and interviewed with a publishing company one time to do about a book with them. And they had this, they had this list of values there. And I, and I asked the people that were in the business boardroom with me, if anybody knew those values, nobody could recite them. Nobody yeah. paid attention to them. They were on the wall. Nobody cared about them. It didn't mean anything. So those are just a PR BS maneuver. The leader of the company has a set of values. Each executive has a set of values. Each manager has a set of values. Supervisors, each employee has a set of values. Each salesperson has a set of values. Now, you're not going to tell them that these are your values you have to live by because that's just artificial. And all that is a suppression of an individuality. Yes. But when you hire somebody, if you get, have a job description that's itemized very clearly for the action steps and you ask them how specifically is doing these, these actions can help you fulfill your values, if they are engaged and inspired to do it, they'll be fluent and congruent in the answers and you'll be able to filter out people who would love to do it. And when they're love to do what you're asking them to do, there's going to now perceive that they're helping you get what you want and they're getting what they want. And now you have yeah. a higher engagement level, which means you have more congruency in the, in the company. So the hiring process can be done that way. And if for some reason people have slipped through the hiring process, 
there's a way of making links and shifting links. You don't sacrifice your values, but you ask how specifically are these responsibilities and these expectations helping you fulfill your values? If you make the links, you can take a job that you feel like I got to do it. I have to do it to something I would really love to do. If you can see how it's you're winning out of it. Nobody goes to work for the sake of a company. They go to work for fulfilling their values. If they feel that the job duties and the mission of the company is helping them fulfill it, they're engaged and inspired. They can't wait to go and they'll think it's their company and they'll have resilience and innovation and they'll contribute massively. But if they can't see how it is and you're autocratically cramming down their throat how you're supposed to be, well, that's the same way you feel if your spouse does it. You want to kill them. (laughs) (laughs) And also they're setting themselves up because when they don't fulfill those values, which they won't because of the the balance that we have, then they're just going to be judged for it. That's it. So that's the moral hypocrisies. The whole thing is a moral hypocrisy. And I, I do my best to try to educate, you know, consultants and, and corporations as I go along. And, and it's, you know, we've made inroads. It's been quite interesting. Mm. We got major corporations using the tool now, the, the value determination that's online, that's free, that you can go on my website and take it, you know, drdmartini.com. They can just go value, determine, determine your values. It's free. It's private. I hope everybody takes advantage of it because it's, it's eye-opening. And companies, when they use that, when they hire, it saves them enormous amounts of aggravation having to fire those people because you you can, I I can, I can find out in advance when they're hired by a screening process, it takes 20 to 30 minutes. I can tell whether they're going to be engaged in that company better than they can in advance. I can, I can tell up front because if they can't see how, what this job duty is going to help them fulfill their values, you're going to have to micromanage them. You're going to have to motivate them extrinsically. You're now, you're, they're going to ask for when do I get vacations and when do I get this and what are my bonuses? And they're not going to be asking, I can't believe I get to do what I love and get paid for it. That's what you want. You want somebody that's inspired to do the job. And I want to I want to touch on that values determination process and without giving too much away, because I think people people do need to see those questions for themselves. But I love I love the simplicity of those questions. And I, can you just share just a couple because it's such a wake up call it's really simple it's no it's not trickery it's uh, can you just share a couple <laughs> tease us yeah i i i started uh, you know back when i was 23 i started noticing that when people tell me their values they told me social idealisms and i didn't see people living it and i thought this mm. is a they're not walking their talk mm. there's no integrity here so I, I what is what's really their values because that's what you, when you know that, you know how to interact with people. And so, um, you know, I used to ask my patients when the patients come in and says, okay, what is this health condition uh, keeping you from doing that's really important to you? Because that's what I know. They're coming in because, you know, they don't want to drop their child if they got a shoulder problem or they don't want to, you know, get in a car crash because they can't turn their neck. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we used to find out with a real motive why they came there. It wasn't because of pain. Because they had pain for three or four months before that. It wasn't pain that brought people. It was something that they couldn't do. And I wanted to know what the values were. So I found out that if you look at what people fill their space with, they fill their intimate space, which is a foot and a half around them, and their personal space, which is about four feet, whatever they can reach and fathom with their hands. Whatever they keep in that most consistently in the most common place they spend time at, they automatically reveal what's valuable. Even a child, if you throw something in a little, you know, baby crib or whatever, you throw something in there, they'll toss it if they don't want it there. And they'll hold it in their mouth and taste it and feel it and play with it if it's something important to them. So our space and our proxemics is the first value determinant. What do we fill our space with most and what's common to it? What's its primary use? The second thing is time. We make time, find time and spend time on things that are really valuable to us. But we run out of time. We don't have time for things that don't. People ask me, do you want to go here? You want to go there? And I go, no, I'm busy when it's not important. But when it is important, we always find time for it. Yeah. So we make time and spend time on things that are valuable. So if we have a drone looking over us and look at how we fill our space and how we spend our time, those are good indicators of what we really value. The third one is energy. If you look very carefully, things that are that make your energy go up, like I love teaching. I teach every day. I love researching and writing. I do that every day. I have energy to do that 18 to 20 hours a day. No problem. But you ask me to go and socialize or social gossip or, or do something that's not important to me. 
a cook. <laughs> I haven't cooked since mm -hmm. I was 24. <laughs> I learned a long time ago, delegate everything, uh, delegate everything but what inspires you. All yeah. I do is teach, research, and write. Everything else is delegated away. I don't do the other stuff. I have no desire to do it. So I hire people that do what I love doing, that I would love them to do, and they love doing it. I only want to surround myself with people that love to do what I want to delegate. And then I free myself up, never have to think about it. They love doing it. They take care of it. I, I'm free to go do what I do great, my core competency, and I don't have anything that devalues me. Because when you do something that's high in your values, your value, your self-worth goes up. When you do things low in your values, it goes down. Yeah. So you don't depreciate yourself. You appreciate yourself when you delegate lower party things and get to the highest party. So look at what energizes you. Because, man, I get energized all day, throughout the day. People go, where do you get all this energy? I said, I'm doing what I love every day. That's freeing it. Energy is infinite once you recognize that source. So energy is the third one. And the fourth one, well, the last one, even though there's 13 of them, is money. You find money, make money, spend money on things that are valuable to you, but you run out of money for things that don't. And if it's not important to you, you don't want to waste money on it. Yeah. But if it is, you'll always find money for it. I know a woman that said, I can't pay my my uh, my rent and I can't afford my, my, my gasoline and my car and everything else. But every single week, she's getting her nails done, her hair is done, her makeup mm -hmm. is being done. She's going shopping. She's getting new clothes. She has always has money for things that are really valuable to her, but she's got somebody else trying to rescue her on the other things. She's got she she's so attractive that men take care of the other ones, and so she knows that that's what works. Yeah. So in the process of doing it, she, she doesn't get around to paying those. She doesn't pay any of her bills hardly, except the ones that are most important to her. It's funny, actually. Yes, I am. Um... I run I run workshops on self care and and I ask people you know what does self care mean to you and what what would you what would you like to do and so how much time are you spending doing it and they say oh, no no I don't I don't have the time and I challenge them and say you're not prioritizing it it's not that you don't have the time it's it's just it's not top of your priority list so so you know and 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 it and it all comes down to values but something I'd like to touch on just when you were talking then. Um, you know this this passion that you have and this this energy that you have that has never ever waned for for teaching reading and writing and i wouldn't mind if uh, I, I know we're coming sort of to the top of our time but but if you don't mind a bit of courageous vulnerability and i know well it's authenticity for you sharing sharing the story of um when you were younger and 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 some of the challenges that you had that have contributed to this an ending energy and passion for what you do. Yeah, I think, I mean, some of it is uh, not as active today, but when I was a, when I was born, I had a deformed arm and leg. It was turned inward, both arm and leg on the left side. And I had to wear braces from age about one and a half to four. And I think that was a, a when I finally got out of those at age four, I, all I wanted to do is be free and run. So I guess I've been on the run all my life. I've traveled <laughs> extensively. I, I've flown 20 million miles in flight and I sailed, I don't, know, I don't know how many thousands of miles. I, this last year, it's been about 10,000 already. And in the process of doing it, um, that was a void that drove a value. I also had a speech impediment when I was a child and had to wear buttons and strings in my mouth to do all these exercises when I was about a year and a half up to also about six and then I found out in when I got six years old in first grade, I'm, my teacher tried to get me to learn to read. And no matter what I did, it wouldn't work. It, it, I had dyslexia and I was saying words backwards, spelling. I couldn't get meaning out of it. It was just, it wasn't working. So I ended up in the dunce class. And the only way I made it through school was asking the smartest kids in, in school, what did they learn? If they told me something verbally, I could get enough to somehow pass. That worked till I was about 12 going on 13. And then we moved from Richmond to Richmond, Texas, from Houston, Texas, to a small town, low socioeconomic. And there I, I didn't have any smart kids and I failed and I dropped out. So I was I hit the streets when I was 13 and I, you know, stayed illiterate till I was 18. And I ended up, you know, living on the streets and I hitchhiked to California when I was 14 and down to Mexico. And I made it over to Hawaii when I was 15 because I wanted to, I could stand on a surfboard and I wanted to surf. Mm -hmm. And so. I nearly died at 17. And then it, uh, right before my 18th birthday, I met a teacher who was speaking one night and I had to happen to go to this talk at this yoga class. And um, this guy inspired me to believe that maybe I could overcome my learning problems 
and someday learn how to read and be intelligent. I never thought I was going to be intelligent to the night I met this guy. And that night was an epiphany. I had a dream and a vision, a literally a vision that I saw in my eyes uh, of, of me span, standing in front of a group of people speaking properly, and intelligently. And I set out on a dream to go and figure out how to overcome my learning problems. And I, that led me to reading a dictionary and memorizing 30 words a day and, and uh, just learning how to gain a vocabulary and, and proper speech and, and, and spelling. And I eventually went back to school and Lord knows I, I ended up uh, excelling after a while because I, once I learned I could read and get some words in me, I just never stopped. Now I've read over 30,660, almost 70 books now. And uh, I'm just constantly devouring everything I can because I was told I would never be able to read, never write, never communicate, never amount thing, never go very far in life. And um, the little, little that I know that that was the, probably the void that drove the value to do all those things today. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. It, it, it's, uh, I know I, I've heard that story a few times before, but it, it just, uh, it continues to inspire me. And, and as, as, as you did, as you did when I was working with you. Um, and now I want to just ex explore a little bit about you talking about the, you know, the, the books that you've read, but also the books that you've written <laughs> um, and the, your book around values. So that will um, support the work that people are doing in the values determination process. If you could share a little bit about that and then also share about your new book that's coming out in October. Yeah, well, the, the Values Factor book is a, a summation of a lot of research over the last, you know, 45 years mm -hmm. on values. And um, because most people, again, are, are trapped in the idea that here's what's right and here's what's wrong. Here's what the authority says, you know, preacher, teacher kind of thing. And I'm interested in what your life demonstrates. Because when I find that people set goals and ask, what are the highest priority actions I can do today to help me fulfill what's truly meaningful to me? they take off. They excel. I mean, I've, I've seen amazing things happen in young people once they get clear on that. Mm. I mean, amazing stuff. I mean, I've seen, a, I saw an eight-year-old boy is now a scholar. Is amazing. He's, he's read 14,000 books now. He didn't know how to read when I met him. I mean, I've seen amazing things, just astonishing things, young people and old people. I had a, well, old people. I'm, I'm, I'm at the age that I used to think was old, sorry. <laughs> You don't look any different. It's now, in, once you're 100, then you start getting old. I think that's what needs the new new phrase now. Absolutely. But, but yeah, because I'm 70 almost. So, so in the process of doing this, I found out that, you know, the value factor is a key to empowering all areas of your life, bottom line. And I, I wanted people to know that how to determine the values and how to use those to empower those areas. Almost every book I, I write has something to do with helping you master your life. And the newest book, uh, The Seven Secret Treasures, is exactly that. How to use values specifically to master learning, to master business, to master wealth building, to master relationship communication, to master social leadership, to master vitality and health and well-being. And master your inspired state, how to live an inspired life. Mm. So it's a powerful little book. It's not a big book. But it's a powerful, great book. It's intense, condensed information. It's a distillation. And I know that it's one of those books you don't put down. You just start reading it. You're not going to put it down. Oh, gosh, um, I could talk to you all day, but I know you have to go. <laughs> Dr. John DiMatti, thank you so much. There is such a wealth of knowledge, advice, guidance, learning, just power packed into, into less than an hour. And, and I know you've been hugely generous. There's a whole heap of uh, free gifts that I'm, I'm going to put in the show notes and 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 links to your books. Um, I don't know if, you, if there's a final word you want to say to us before you go. I, I am so grateful um, for what you've shared with us today. Well, whoever's out there, whoever's listening, regardless of you know your background, culture, gender, whatever, 
um, you want to give yourself permission to be you. Hmm. The magnificence of who you are is far greater than any fantasies you'll ever impose on yourself. Don't be second at being somebody else. Don't live in the shadows of anyone. Stand on the shoulders of giants by recognizing that whatever you admire in other people is already inside you. It doesn't need to be developed. It's already there. But it's in a form that is congruent with your highest values, not theirs. And so sometimes we compare ourselves to others instead of comparing our daily actions to our own values and fulfilling our own mission. So give yourself permission to shine, not shrink, and to be yourself, because the magnificence of that is far greater than anything else you'll put on yourself. So that's the message. I think that that's so important for people to realize that they already are worthy of love. They already are magnificent. They don't need to get rid of any part of themselves or fix some part of themselves to be themselves. And that's what I learned from you and for what I'll always and forever be grateful for. Thank you so much, Dr. John. Go well. And um, I'm excited for other people to hear this. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be on your show. Thanks for listening. And we hope that this conversation provided the insights and inspiration that you were looking for. Did you know that Authentic Leadership is currently ranking sixth in the top 25 Australian leadership podcasts? You can help us get to number one by heading over to Apple iTunes and doing three quick things. One, subscribing. Two, giving us a positive rating. And three, writing a short review. This is the most effective way for us to get the key messages around 21st century leadership out into the community. And before you go, if you're in the business of learning and development or HR and are looking for a facilitator or speaker, let's talk. You can head over to the BrainSmart website, that's brain-smart.com to see examples of our programs or email me, Claire, that's C-L-A-R-E at brain-smart.com. Go well and thanks for listening.